Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, the symptoms of Cushing's is frightful. And your mood isn't even close to being delightful. When your cortisol has no place to go. Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. <laughs> Uh, hello everyone. That was our Christmas spirit coming through. Uh, welcome to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I don't know if you were, I don't know if you paid attention to what we were just singing about. Uh, apart from it being a wonderful Dean Martin based Christmas tune, we started to sing about Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome. Because today we are going through the adrenal gland. Right, Maddie? We are indeed. How have you been, Matt? We've had a week off. I know. We've had a week and a bit off. I've been spending time with my little baby girl, and you've got three new chicks. Chickens. <laughs> chickens. Chickens. Don't chickens. tell my wife. They are chickens, and not do they chicks. Have, do they have names? No. Chick one, chick two, chick three? Yes. Something like that. Okay. you got, for those that are listening, which hopefully is you, Matt's got many animals, don't you? you got a menagerie. Animal farm. Oh, really? An uprising is coming. <laughs> All right. So... The adrenal system, or the adrenal gland specifically, is pretty interesting. So is this the last, do you think this is going to be our last endocrine gland? I think so. Because the reproductive, we're going to probably do it as a system, right? Yeah, we'll do reproductive as a system. We may not do reproductive next, but we'll do reproductive as a system. I mean, the gonads, 
um, will do in the reproductive system. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Even though yeah, it's a gland, but it's part of the reproductive system. All right. So and we'll... again, listeners, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com. You can contact us on Twitter, which is at gubiosciences. You can even contact us directly on Twitter. I'm Mike underscore Todorovich, or no, I'm not. I'm at Mickey Todd. Is yeah, it? I'm at Mickey Todd or at Mikey Todd. I always forget. Just look for Dr. Mike Todorovich and I'll come up. And you can look for Dr. Matt Barton and uh, Matt will come up as well. That's on Twitter at least. And you can follow us on Facebook at uh, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Yep. Uh, I think that's basically the housekeeping stuff. Are we going to have a break over the break? Oh, a break over the break. <laughs> Just so the the listeners... Yeah, after this episode, maybe one or two weeks off. Okay. And then we'll jump back into the... Uh, the new season. So maybe everyone, while everyone out there is having their break um, and catching up with the podcast, maybe it's a good time to contact us um, quickly and suggest the next topic area. Yes. Oh, and do us a big favor. If you like listening to us, go on iTunes and give us a nice five out of five star rating. If you don't like us, just don't <laughs> give us a rating. We've got a one star. We've got a one star. But I think, this is my theory, I yeah. think... Mike offended someone last week with I can't Himalayan rock salt. No, I, <laughs> I can't. I think it's you. You're the one that offends people, not me. I try my hardest to be this, you know, happy-go-lucky chap from the streets. All right. <laughs> should we start the adrenal gland? Yes, we should. All right. So Glands, they're plural. They okay. Should, they should be. So there's two of them. Yep. Where are they? Uh, well, let's go by the name. Ad renal. So ad meaning on or near? Yeah. Renal addition, meaning? Addition two. Renal meaning? Uh, kidney. So, what's the difference between kidney and renal? Do you know? Oh, they're just the languages. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, so, the pronunciation of the word. <laughs> no, well, it's, it's a Greek and a Latin basis. So, I think you've got the nephros, yeah. which is... Uh, is it Greek or Latin? Oh, I can't remember. Nephros would be Greek. And Os. The, yeah, Greek. And then the other one is renal. Okay. Um, so, that's Latin-based. And uh, we've said this in previous podcasts, but that's where you get add. Adrenal, so adrenaline, yep. versus um, nephros, and in, instead of doing ad nephros, they do epi, um, which means upon as a um, prefix, epi upon. So okay. epi nephros or epinephrine. So so nephros is Greek, renal is Latin. Okay, so the Americans have gone with the Greeks in this case. So if you go to America, they will talk about. Uh, epinephrine. Yeah. Uh, or ne- nor epinephrine as okay. a type of hormone. Yeah. Which we'll talk about today. But um, the British or the UK based um, lexicon will talk more in the noradrenaline or adrenaline. Yeah. So adrenal. So Latin based. So basically, you've got these adrenal glands which sit um, on top of the kidney. What do they look like? Uh, well, they're different on b- both sides. So, one is more pyramid shape and yeah. the other one's more crescent shape. Which one? Ugh. I think the left is crescent and I think the right is pyramid, but I could be wrong. Is that because of the ones lower than the other? I don't think so. Not because of the liver above? It's more likely to potentially be the diaphragm. Oh, the diaphragm. Yeah, because okay. they both sit on the crura or the crust of the diaphragm, which yeah. is the root of the... Of the diaphragm, yep, which is anchors it to the back wall, um, but they have their own little kind of fascia capsule 
So if we were to get, so if for the listeners, if they were to stand up or get a child or get a friend or get whatever mm. and to locate mm. where the adrenal glands would be, yep. just on a person just using the external anatomy, where would they be looking for? Do they go the front or the back? Yeah, side? the back. So most, in most cases, because the uh, adrenal glands, oh, sorry, the kidneys are behind in the abdomen, they're behind everything. Yeah, behind the GIT viscera. Yeah, all the viscera. So, again, if you were to see a cadaver and it was to be opened at the front, you'd go through, like, the skin, you'd go through the fat, you'd go through the muscles, so all the abdominal muscles, and then you'd go into the first layer of the peritoneum, which is the parietal peritoneum. And then probably the first thing you'd see uh, as you go into the abdomen would be probably a structure called the greater omentum, which is this kind of fatty apron. And then you'd see all the intestines. Now, to get to the kidney, you'd have to almost pull all the intestines out or at least move them to the side quite forcefully. Mm. And then you'd get to the back wall of the abdomen and that would have its own peritoneum covering and then you'd have to go through that. So, there's a whole cavity you need to get all the way through. And then you're behind the peritoneum, which is... retro. Retro, retro So, the kidneys and the adrenal glands are retro peritoneal. So, instead of having to do that... Why don't you just flip the patient and go through the back? Yeah, you go through the back. So, um, just so you know, the um, where the, the main vessels and the ureter comes out and in to the kidney, which is the hilum of the kidney, yeah. in most cases, both kidneys is around L1 because the lumbar vertebrae are quite big. Yeah. Even though the, um, the right side is lower than the left, it's still L1 level. So, that's your kind of landmark if you can find L1 vertebra. For kidney? Or that's where the that's hilum the, is? The hilum of the kidney. Yeah. So, you'd probably go one level up. So, about T12. Yeah. You would expect that would be the level thereabouts of the, the renal. Adrenal sorry, the gland. adrenal glands. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, in they're about four grams each in weight. Okay. So, not too heavy. Um, they're one of the most perfused organs in the body. So, what's that mean when I say perfused? Blood, blood supply. Yeah, the amount of blood that can go to the tissue and participate in gas exchange. So they're one of the most highly perfused organs in the body. They receive like two liters per kilogram per minute. But just going back, you said gas exchange. That's going to be obviously more with the lungs, right? Gas exchange. No, gas exchange happens at all tissues. <laughs> but I mean, like the primary function of the adrenal glands is going to be an endocrinal release. So it's probably going to be more as a percolating flow through the kidney rather than necessarily supplying highly mitotically active or energy active cells. So they're probably, the flow is probably more so to, because as it's going through the gland from the outside in, it's kind of percolating through all these little cells. I'd I'd imagine, I could be wrong, I'm happy to stand corrected here, but I would imagine that it's more about just flowing blood through all these cells. We'll go through how those these cells are arranged in their kind of stratification, but it's almost like it's this flowing liquid through these cells to pick up the hormonal release to be then taken off into the systemic circulation. All right, so... What do you reckon? Yeah, I've, I think that's fair enough. Compared um, to, say, the lungs or the kidney or the heart, which is a very energy-dependent, active you know, kind of organ, organs yeah. that need a lot of energy. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, and just to look at, so I said, you know, the, the adrenal glands receive two liters per kilogram per minute of blood, but they only weigh four grams. 
So that means there's about eight mils. They get about eight mils of blood per minute if they weigh each, if yep. they weigh four grams. Yep. Um, but that's that's considerable considering they only weigh four grams. They're getting eight mils, which is eight grams mm. of blood every minute. So they're getting twice their body weight in blood per minute. Yeah. That's quite intense. Um, and that's only second to like kidneys and thyroid. Thyroid, yeah. surprisingly, gets a huge amount, but it's highly vascularized. Yeah. Probably, um, probably for a similar reason. Now, historically, the kidneys were first described back in 1500s by an early anatomist, but then they were more adequate, like clinically they were described by a guy called Thomas Addison back in 1855 because of the... Is he the light bulb guy? No. no. (laughs) (laughs) Who is that guy? Edison. Edison, that's it. So A's and A's mixed up. No, so Thomas Addison who I assume Addison's disease is named after, yep. considering Thomas Addison was the first person to describe the clinical features of what's called adrenal failure or adrenal oh, insufficiency, yeah. where the adrenal gland just doesn't work to the degree in which it should, right. and all the clinical manifestations of that is named after him. So yeah, from then, the 1850s, he described that. And then you had Harvey, Harvey Cushion, who described Cushion syndrome, which is what you sang at the start. Yeah. Oh, we'll talk about Cushing, and we'll talk about Addison's in a sec. Now... In the eighteen late eighteen mid to late eighteen hundreds, a uh, an anatomist called Albert von Kolliker uh, spoke about Kolliker. The, yeah, did he have colic? No, it starts with a K. <laughs> Kolliker described the adrenal glands uh, in numerous vertebrate species, and he was the first to say that the adrenal glands have two distinct, predominant mm. layers. What are those layers? Oh, you know, you're coming into my territory, I Michael. Know, unfortunately, I'm pushing towards embryology. What are those two layers? Well, comparative anatomy. Uh, well, there is the outer cortex, yeah. hence why it's called the cortex, again, it's the outer shell, and then the inner medulla, which is the marrow, I think medulla means marrow, so you've got the inner part and the outer part, so it's two kind of areas, One's the tissue is, one is called the adrenocortico tissue, and the other one is the chromophon tissue. Okay. I think chromophon is because of the stain that yeah. first stained it up in histological yeah, the s- color. slides. I'm not sure. They, a lot of the, a lot of the early stainings were, you know, acid or base or neutral staining, mm. and that's also why you get um, in your blood cells you get basophils and neutrophils. That's and right. So they're forth. named after their stain. That's stain. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so that in, was interesting. In the going to comparative anatomy, since you brought it up. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> what you need to understand with the with adrenal glands. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, or endocrine glands, is in many other animals, or at least vertebrates, they can just be a scattering of cells and not necessarily in one um, contained gland, per se. And I think the, the best example is probably the adrenal gland, because the adrenal gland is a composite of two parts, which you actually just mentioned, that you have the outer cortex and you've got the inner medulla. And so, if you go down to, say, the early, like the fish, they will have them in two separate places. But as The cortex and the medulla, yeah, two separate places. Two separate places. And they are fairly close to the kidney, or the kidney that's most um, closest resembles a kidney in that particular animal. So, uh, let's just go back one step. Let's just pause for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> now there's pause. 
So if they if you're saying that in lower order creatures, which we sort of we can use that as a proxy as an earlier evolutionary organism compared to us in yeah. in a, as a proxy, right? Not that's not accurate, but does that mean that the origins of the cortex of the medulla, embryological origins, so when we develop from a single cell yeah. to our 100 trillion cells, that the cortex of the medulla arise from two separate places and just yeah. come together and snap together to form the adrenal gland? Correct. So, you want to talk about that or not? Um, That's pretty... That sounds sure, pretty interesting. Sure, sure. Where do they... Okay. If you were to set the scene as to X amount of weeks... Oh, uh, now you're testing me. Well, they come from two areas, So, like you said. So, the cortex comes more from, I think, the somatic mesoderm. So What's that mean? The mesoderm just means the middle dermal layer. So, yep. in, to, cr- to create us, to create a human, we start with one cell, like you said. Um, they differentiate into two groups of cells, one that kind of form the um, placenta and the other one that forms the embryo. Yep. And then the, about the third week in gestational, um, it splits the, the embryo proper splits into three areas and then the dermal layers because they look like a, like skin. Derms. So, which one came from the mesoderm? Uh, the mesoderm is going to be the cortex. So, it's, I think, the somatic mesoderm. So, it's kind of like the, the body wall mesoderm. So, okay. what makes our skin? Um, no, that's going to be ectoderm. Okay. Yeah. So, that's going to be all the kind of connective tissue, muscles, bones, all that stuff. Okay. So, that also creates the cortex of the adrenal gland. Yeah. Uh, what about the medulla then? Well, the medulla is quite interesting because as we, if you listen to the podcast on the sympathetic or autonomic nervous system, we spoke that in most cases, or in all cases except the adrenal gland, the um, the, the neuron pathway will always, always consist of new, two neurons, a pre-ganglionic and a post-ganglionic neuron. For the sympathetic Remember chain, that? did you say? No, both, parasympathetic and Oh, the autonomic nervous yeah. system, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Now, um, these, where they kind of communicate, so their ganglion, yeah. usually comes from a group of cells in the embryo called the neural crest. Yeah. Okay, they're very important. Heard of that. Um, now, only in the adrenal gland, as far as I'm aware, um, it migrates, pulls it all the way to the kidney. Pulls the ganglion. Uh, yeah. Or the neurocrest cells. Or the neurocrest cells kind of make the ganglions. Yeah. Okay. So, you could be probably accurate to say that most of the post-ganglionic neurons in the autonomic nervous system are neurocrest derivatives. Okay. Okay. Come from the neurocrest. So, you're saying that neurocrest cells created ganglionic cells or, or pre-cell structures and then a group of those got pulled. Yeah. They've migrated a long way. From where? Well, from the... Um, Paravertebral, so the sympathetic chain. Yeah, all on the either way, side of the yeah, spine. All the way to top of the kidney. Wow. And so now that post-ganglionic neuron, okay, at least in the sympathetic nervous system, what does the what does the post-ganglionic neuron secrete? At, in the at, sympathetic, at, its, at its very end, adrenaline. Very end, adrenaline, right? Yeah, or, or noradrenaline, noradrenaline right. as a neurotransmitter. Right. And so now it's pulled that ganglion all the way into the top of the kidney yeah. to then be taken up into those cortex cells, but they've kind of migrated in right into the middle of the cortex cells. It's crazy. And made up these, the medulla. So, the cortex and the medulla have two very distinct embryological origins. Yes, that's right. And the, basically, the, the middle, the medulla, is 
pretty much just part of the sympathetic nervous system. Exactly. It in itself is a proxy for sympathetic ganglia. Yeah, so yeah. just like the ganglia that's associated with the heart and the lungs and whatever to stimulate a fight or flight response, mm. the court, the medulla of the adrenal gland is the same. Exactly. And so it releases like, adrenaline. Yep, that's right. It's, so it releases the same neurotransmitter as all the others. Yeah. And it has an, the preganglionic neuron that will stimulate it. Okay, so you, that's why if you look at that typical um, schematic drawing of the sympathetic nervous system and you look at all the, the nerves coming out and going to organs like the yeah. heart. The thoracolumbar. Yeah. yeah. You see that there's one that goes all the way and doesn't synapse. Yeah. It just goes all the way to the adrenal gland. So, single neuron starting mm. at the central nervous system and finishing at the adrenal gland. Yeah. And if you're like me, I always looked at it and go, huh, I wonder why that one's different. Yeah. When I w- was in my undergrad, yeah. I never really, I just memorized it. Yeah. I didn't really think much of it. Yeah, you're like that. <laughs> so now, once you know the embryology or the basis of it, then you can go, oh, well, that makes sense because all the medulla is actually little neurons. Yeah. And they are releasing their neurotransmitter. And they're the chromaffin cells. Yeah. But instead of them releasing their neurotransmitter into a synapse, to say go into heart tissue mm. or go into lung, like bronchioles yeah. or go into you know other viscera yeah. it goes into blood because it's an endocrine gland so that's how it's a little bit different because yeah. obviously the sympathetic nervous system's targeted one neuron goes to the second neuron which goes to the effector whether yeah. that be heart lungs eyes skin whatever yeah. but here it's got a single neuron going to instead of a second neuron it goes to the adrenal gland specifically the medulla and that releases the noradrenaline yeah, derivative exactly. probably adrenaline. probably stronger the adrenaline and releases it to be a diffuse release into the bloodstream right. to have a systemic yeah, big fight or flight response yeah. so in part we can say as our first point in regards to function that the adrenal gland plays an important role in fight or flight response very important very important All and right. so going back to your blood flow there's actually three separate arter- arteries that supply the adrenal gland. Really? What are they? Well, you got one that will come off the arteries that supply the diaphragm. Mm-hmm. you got one artery that comes off the renal gland. Or the, the, the renal gland. The kidney. Yeah. And then one that comes directly off the aorta. Okay. And so you got three arteries that supply this little gland. So that, you know, reinforces your point on it having such a... Eight mils blood. of blood per minute. But it only has one gland. vein leaving it. So you've gotcha. kind of got, as I said earlier, you've got all this blood coming into the gland and it percolates from the cortex all the way through mm. and into the, the medulla yeah. and then one vein leaving and then that will take all the hormones with it. Wow. And then depending on what hormones have been dropped off. And they think that, you know, because in the cortex, now, Mike, you can go through this in a second, but in the cortex you've got other kind of stress hormones mm. and they think... One of the advantages of why the medulla became in the medulla is the cortisol, which comes from the cortex. Yeah. Actually, hence its name. It, yeah, it has an effect on the chromaffin cells to make to amplify. Stimulatory. It yeah. Be- it makes sense because, you, like you just said, so that the the arteries that are coming through end up got perfusing through the cortex first and then into the medulla. Yeah. So if the cortisol gets released it'll have to go through the mandala before it exits the adrenal gland. Yep. So, stimulate. Oh, that's interesting. And, so- I, and I was, I remember I heard from one of my physiology professors back in my undergrad. Yeah. 
And he said that it's rare when you have a sympathetic response to really get an adrenal release. Like he said, in most cases, you would, it, your sympathetic response would be mostly um, neurological, not endocrinological, if that's a word. Um, so you wouldn't really, in most cases, when you have a stress, mm. when you're stressed, you wouldn't really have your adrenal gland pumping out a lot of adrenaline. You'd have to get a really exaggerated response to get that mm. going. Because it's to, to, to release the adrenaline, it's such a big, big sympathetic drive. Yeah. But, like, it, but it happens. But it happens. And I remember him saying he, he went to the dentist once and he needed to get, I don't know, some kind of tooth extraction or some kind of work done on his tooth which needed to be um, locally blocked. Now, if you think the lignocaine that you are generally given to get a local anaesthetic, yeah. um, they mostly put, I'm not sure if they still do, but in many cases they used to put adrenaline into it. Okay. And you'd think, why would they put adrenaline when you do a local block? Yeah. And the reason for that is because adrenaline is a powerful vasoconstrictor. Yes. And so, what they would want is when you put the local block in, you don't want all the little blood vessels to be taken, the lignocaine, away. True. Okay. So, you'd inject the lignocaine with the adrenaline in it and it would cause vasoconstrictor in that area and the lignocaine would only act on the nerves in that area to block it. Nice. That's right? interesting. But he said yeah. when he got the block, he reckons that the dentist put it straight into a vein. Oh. And he said... He got this gross stimulatory this, effect. He got, yeah, he got this adrenaline response. Because it went straight yeah. back to the heart and his heart just goes... Ah, and he said he knew physiologically what was happening. Yeah. But he, his whole emotional... So, it wasn't just his heart went up and his breathing went up, but he got scared like he wanted just to run out or wow. punch the dentist out. Wow. Because that's how strong the response was. Wow. So, really? Yeah. Just from just from a little uh, shot of adrenaline. So maybe you don't really need a great deal if you get a, get it into your blood. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, well, I uh, guess it's a bit uh, of a digression. So did you want to do you want to go back to talk about adrenaline, or do you want to keep talking about it now? Well, no, I don't. I don't think there's a great more to add unless I, you have something. Yeah, I got a little bit. All right. So obviously, adrenaline is a catecholamine. Yes. Right. Such as dopamine and, and serotonin, they're catecholamines. So they're just neurotransmitters, basically, who, that have a particular derivative, such as tyrosine. Now, adrenaline, th I think this so is it's an amino acid tyrosine. Uh, amino acid is a, yeah, tyrosine is an amino acid. So did they go through dopamine first and then enter? Yeah, so you can, so adrenaline is made when tyrosine turns into dopamine, okay. and then dopamine must turn into adrenaline. All right. Okay, you can even make, so tyrosine, must come from your diet, okay? But you can also make tyrosine from phenylalanine, oh, right. right? And that's why some people, if you, you know, phenylketonuria, yeah. so issues with processing phenylalanine can affect uh, catecholamine production. Right. Anyway, okay. that's, that's besides the point. The point I'm trying to make here is that even though we talk about adrenaline and noradrenaline, or if you're in the States, epinephrine, norepinephrine, mm. Simplistically, you can say that noradrenaline is the neurotransmitter released yeah. from the postganglionic neurons of the sympathetic nervous system, and that adrenaline is the hormone that's released from the adrenal gland. Okay. 
they actually have slightly differing effects, or at least they have different affinities to receptors. So we know there's alpha and beta receptors for the adrenal uh, system, right? So the adrenergic system, I should say. Well, the adrenaline more so stimulates beta receptors, right? Adrenaline. Adrenaline. And noradrenaline seems to have a higher affinity for alpha receptors. So stimulation of beta receptors, so for example, beta 1, receptors is going to hit receptors in the myocardium, so the heart, mm-hmm. and that's going to increase heart rate, contractility, so forth. Okay. Stimulation of the beta 2 adrenergic receptors is going to result in relaxation, remember? So this relaxes smooth muscle of the uterus and the bronchi and skeletal muscle arterioles. And alpha 1 receptors, so adrenergic receptors mediate vasoconstriction, that's what you were talking about. That's that's the skin and GRT and so forth. Yep, yep. And alpha-2 adrenergic receptors, remember they exist in the presynaptic neurons uh, in the central nervous system and they mediate or attenuate or slow down, basically, sympathetic outflow. So what we could say is that the net effect of adrenal catecholamines, so adrenal adrenaline, okay. right, yeah. is to augment blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain, heart, skeletal system, and also very essential in the fight or flight response. Okay. That's why we release it. Yep. Is that okay to say? Yeah. It's basically reiterating your point, but I thought it's it's important when it comes to understanding the physiology of uh, of adrenaline from okay. the, from the uh, medulla. Right. Now, with the cortex, should we start going through the cortex, the outer layer? I think just um, go through all the layers quickly. Okay, um, so histologically, so if you were to yep. get a knife and cut through an adrenal gland. Okay, so the first layer you'd go through. And yeah, tell me from outside. Yep. All the way to the inside. Okay. What kind of different cell layers we go through? All right. Cortex has three layers. Okay. These three layers together are about two millimeters thick. Right. So that's not much, but they cumulatively compose more than eighty percent of the mass of the adrenal gland. Right, yep. So they're dense cells, densely populated. The first layer you would go through if you were to cut through the adrenal gland is what we call the zona, which just means area, glomerulosa. Okay. All right. The next layer is zona fasciculata. Yep. And the third layer, the most inner layer, is zona reticularis. And all these three are part of the cortex. All of cortex. these three are part of the cortex. Once you get through the reticularis, you are moving your way through to the medulla. And all of these are corticosteroid hormones. Well, they themselves aren't corticosteroid hormones. These are the areas that corticosteroid hormones are produced and released from. So, all these three produce corticosteroid hormones. Yes, and there's two major types, which are glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids. Okay. So, gluco, what's that make you think of? Glucose. Okay, and so... Sugar. Which means sugar. So, what... When we think about that, what is what is that telling you? If if I said that the cortex of the adrenal gland releases glucocorticosteroids, yep. gluco has something to do with sugar. Do you have any idea what glucocorticoids or glucocorticosteroids, let's just say glucocorticoids, what they do? Um, so the hormones glucocorticoids, what they yeah, do? Yeah. Basically just um, help just generally, and then the, we'll talk more the processing of carbohydrate metabolism. All right. What, okay, so let's say we want to stimulate the release of glucocorticoids from the adrenal cortex. Where does this begin? 
Uh, sorry, ask that question again. Okay. I'll say it slowly because I know that there's something wrong with you today. <laughs> that if we wanted to stimulate the release of glucocorticoids at the adrenal cortex, where's this whole process going to begin? I think so. We're going back to the first endocrine podcast. Yeah. The, one of the master glands or regulators. Yeah. Up in the brain. The hypothalamus. <laughs> Oh, you wanted me to be specific? Uh, I wanted you to be specific. Our listeners want specificity, Mathau. All right. All right. So, the hypothalamus is going to release a hormone, because that's what the hypothalamus does. What's that hormone called? Can you remember? It would be a releasing hormone. It's a releasing hormone. It's called corticotropin-releasing hormone. Okay. Now, corticotropin-releasing hormone is released by the hypothalamus and travels down to which... Aspect of the pituitary gland, anterior or posterior? Anterior. Which means, does it go via a neuron or does it go via a blood system? It goes through a portal blood system. Okay. So, adrenocorticotropic hormone. No, wrong. <laughs> Corticotropin releasing hormone yeah, will, travel through, <laughs> will travel through to the anterior pituitary yep. where it stimulates the anterior pituitary so to the release... Corticotrophs. The corticotrophs. And to the anterior pituitary, which stimulates it to release adrenocorticotropic hormone. Also known as, an acronym? ACTH. Right. So, if you break down the word adrenocorticotropic hormone, it tells you everything it does, right? Yeah, it Adreno, does. it's going to the adrenal gland. Cortico, going to the cortex of the adrenal gland. Tropic, telling you it's going to that gland to tell it to release another hormone. Or to nourish it. Or to nourish it, but that <laughs> doesn't really help when it comes to the understanding. Um, you said it's everything in the name, so I'm just I being know, specific. I know. And there it will then travel down. And it's a hormone, so it's in blood. And it will hop in the bloodstream, this ACTH, travel to the adrenal gland, specifically the cortex. It binds to a receptor on the adrenal cortico cell surface and stimulates glucocorticoid secretion. Okay. And so that's the glucocorticoid is cortisol. Cortisol. And you can have, you know, cortisone injections, yeah. and it's basically a derivative of cortisol. Right. Let's talk about what cortisol specifically does. Do you want me to do it, or do you want to start? No, you're better with the chemistry. That's so true. I'm better with most of the stuff except the boring, let's compare one animal to another. All right, so glucocorticoids as a hormone have quite, you know, uh, broad-ranging effects. Affects pretty much all organ systems of the body. And as a rule, you can say that glucocorticoids generate a catabolic state for the body in response to stress. Okay. So, what do those things mean? If I say it stimulates a catabolic response in times of stress, what's catabolic mean? Breakdown. Okay. Breakdown of what specifically are we talking about? Macro molecules into smaller molecules. Yeah, so we energy production. That's my boy. So we're talking about catabolism of the stored glucose, catabolism of stored fats or fatty acids, and catabolism of stored proteins. So ultimately you just need a whole lot of energy to do other things, so that's why it's recruiting all this sugar. That's exactly right. So the so, wh- so why would you need this if you had a stress response? Okay. So give us give us the reason for the stimulus to begin with. Okay. Matt's coming at me with a knife, which I use this example because he does this quite often. He sleepwalks, and uh, sometimes he hops in his car, travels all the way to my house, (laughs) 
and uh, decides to try and attack me. He does this. I'm scared because I'm asleep. I've only been sleeping for two hours because I've got a newborn child. And <laughs> he, uh... oh, excuse me. He comes at me with this knife and I start to get scared. Now, as I start to get scared, my hypothalamus, master regulator, releases corticotropic releasing hormone. That goes to my anterior pituitary, releases adrenal corticotropic hormone, travels via my bloodstream to the adrenal gland, stimulates the release of glucocorticoids. Probably also you stimulating your sympathetic nervous system as well. Absolutely. So you're releasing your norelin as well. At the exact same time. So you've got a short term and a long term stress response here. Yeah. The short term is going to be the neurons, right? Pew, 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 firing off yep. with the adren- uh, with the noradrenaline so and the long term is going to be the adre- uh, the adrenal gland response. Right. So the cortisol coming out. Yep. Now you ask what does this cortisol do? Well this cortisol is basically resulting in alterations in carbohydrate, protein and lipid metabolism. So that's to break down the stored sugars in the liver, which is glycogen. Fats and proteins. I'm getting there, but I'm just done with the Oh, sorry, go on. So, it's breaking down the glycogen in the liver that's stored, um, and the liver starts to release free glucose. Well, not necessarily, because what it doesn't, it doesn't actually, it more so stimulates gluconeogenesis than glycogenolysis. Okay. So, can I define those two terms? Yeah, sure. Okay, so, it will do both, but, so... Glycogenolysis, in the name glycogenolysis, right? Yep. Glycogenolysis is the breakdown of glycogen into glucose. Yep. And cortisol does do this, yes. It also stimulates gluconeogenesis, which is the production of glucose from non-carbohydrate-based sources. Mm -hmm. So these are fats and proteins, okay? And this gluconeogenesis can actually release, uh, can actually result in the Increase or net glycogen deposition. Okay. Production of glycogen. Right? Decreases it. Well, production of it and then the glycogenolysis decreases it. Right. Okay. Overall, the point is that cortisol stimulates glycogenolysis to break down stored glycogen into glucose and stimulates gluconeogenesis to create new glucose from fats and Proteins yep. so to ta- increase blood glucose level. That's the app. That's, yeah, so that's the, the ultimate goal. The take-home message for the listeners is: cortisol will increase sugar levels in the blood. Yes. By means of glycogen breakdown, but also from proteins and fats. That's right. Clear by that. Yes. So now you've got a whole increase um, levels of sugar in your blood. So people who are stressed can get hyperglycemia, and probably through this through this way, unless they're just having a lot of sugar in their diet. Yes, so this hyperglycemic situation, right? Did you know that all this increased glucose or sugar in the blood, that you think, okay, there's now more sugar available for the body to use. And that is correct to a degree. The peripheral tissues actually are not allowed to, they're inhibited to take up this glucose. Because there's no insulin? Because, that's exactly right, these these glucocorticoids stimulate lipolysis, so that's free fatty acids in the circulation, and they generate a state of insulin resistance. Right. Because the the cortisol kind of blocks the effect of insulin? Yep. So it's a counter-regulatory. So cortisol is blocking or counter-regulating the effect of insulin, and this is what stimulates proteins to be broken down from the body. 
So why then? What would the advantage of having all this sugar in your blood be then? Because it's just the it's specific, more so specifically the peripheral tissues that can't access it. But what can access it? Other tissues, other like, important organs, like like those of the skeletal muscle and the brain. Okay, so basically, um, the brain, the heart, the skeletal muscles that you presume are the most important ones while you're in that stress response. Yep. Uh, able to be or they're independent of that insulin and think about it this is the uh, i think quite an important point if you want to think about what tissues are going to be able to utilize this free glucose it's going to be tissues that will more so be activated by the adrenaline that's also released mm. from the adrenal gland Makes sense. so they work together pretty well heart muscle is going to increase boom 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 boom, boom. therefore it requires more energy therefore yeah. it can take up the glucose okay. right so so if you think about those effects yeah. then you can think about what tissues are going to take up that that now free glucose it's a good point yeah so i think also going to other animals they found the they found that um, once the animal becomes stressed so there is a stress response um, it can change the behavior of the animal to almost completely reset its behavior. So let's say if you, um, the animal was in a nurturing or a parental mode behavior, yeah. so it was looking after the young. If it's if it, if it's, say a predator come onto the scene, or um, if let's say they run out of food in yeah. the environment, cortisol will be released because it's a stress hormone, and it almost resets the other endocrine responses to make the animal kind of fend for itself and forget about its young. Interesting. And so then it would migrate away or whatever, wow. change its behavior for its own survival. Wow. So the animal really becomes quite selfish in that sense. Yeah. So that's certain animals. So could we say that in humans, people may become selfish in stressful situations and just want to protect themselves and not want to protect others? Could I go that far and extrapolate from that data to make that statement? I'm not sure about that, but because I found think that that's but, what you would do. But they found that humans with you and or captive animals, the yeah. animals that are just locked in cages, will just have high amounts of cortisol yeah. all the time. Yeah, and humans are similar that they can, through certain stresses, it could be um, environmental stresses or psychological stresses or what have you, economic stresses, um, that can now go past just the immediate advantage or benefit to now become detrimental because cortisol over long periods of time not only is important just for your immediate survival, but then um, its side effects or its detrimental effects is going to be, it kind of down-regulates your immune system. Yes, so which we'll talk about in a sec. It kind of stops, say, inflammation mm -hmm. and all your immune cells functioning. This it, is cortisol, you said? Cortisol, yeah. Yep. It uh, has an effect on... Um, your gut, on your cardiovascular system. Systemic, everywhere. And so, it can really start to have long-term detrimental effects to the body. And just out of interest, it's uh, one of the research projects that I'm doing is to take salivary samples, saliva samples, from individuals who have dementia or early-stage dementia and measuring the free cortisol within their saliva as a proxy for stress. Okay. Because again... There's what we call the stress axis or the stress, um, well, basically it's called the HPA axis, mm -hmm. which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Okay. And this is what's commonly known as the uh, system, uh, the stress response within the body. Right. Right. 
that so these three systems acting upon each other. Okay. Um, now, so how would you? So wouldn't you think that individual to individual, the cortisol levels will be all different? Yeah, and cortisol actually is you can't really highly, highly variable. Yeah. From individual to individual, yeah. and cortisol day. releases yes in accordance with the circadian rhythm. Mm. So when you wake up in the morning, cortisol levels are quite high. So the highest when you kind of are starting to arouse. Yep. So cortisol levels are quite variable. This is one of the difficulties with using it as a proxy for stress. Because yeah, you wouldn't know the what's baseline. baseline. Yeah. That's right. Um, final point with the effect of uh, glucocorticoids. Um, so, cardiac contractility, right, and peripheral vascular tone are maintained... So, heart r- contraction and blood vessel. Yes. Uh, vascular tone. Diameter. So, how... how the diameter. Yeah. Obviously, it's mediated by the adrenaline release from the adrenal gland, right? Okay. So, okay. Now, cardiac contractility and peripheral vascular tone are going to be maintained, right? And this is why there's this hemodynamic collapse that accompanies acute adrenal insufficiency, right? So, what I'm saying is when the adrenal gland craps itself, which is what's called adrenal insufficiency, it's not releasing enough adrenaline, right? Heart contractility drops. Vascular tone drops, right? Mm -hmm. Both of these can be maintained through glucocorticoids from what you said earlier because glucocorticoids can stimulate adrenaline to be released from the adrenal medulla. So, you know, you made that statement that as the blood flow goes through the cortex first, picks up cortisol, then goes to the medulla, and you said that some cortisol can stimulate or glucocorticoids can stimulate adrenaline. Well, the, this concept has been demonstrated clinically because you can inject a patient with glucocorticoids right. who have adrenal insufficiency yep. and this can help counteract that the low contractility and the uh, um, vascular tone of the blood vessels. Okay. So help reestablish or um, help fix up the, this hemodynamic collapse is what it's called. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. Let's move on. So that's the... Um, one I'm glad part, I brought that, it up. That's one part of the cortex. So we haven't spoken the... about the anti-inflammatory properties yet. You brought it up, but I would like to talk about that very quickly of cortisol. Okay. Is right. that okay? Yep. So cortisol is a steroid, right? Glucocorticoids are steroids and cortisol so is a steroid. Based from a fat? That's right. And when you take cortisone as an injection... It is, again, a steroid, and it's going to have all these effects that we're talking about, right? Okay. Now, cortisol or cortisone is a potent anti-inflammatory drug. Hence, if you've ever had a cortisone injection, it's likely you'll have it in an area that is has a high level of pro-inflammatory markers, or you may have bursitis of the shoulder, so inflammation of the bursa, which is like a little sac in the shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. And this inflammation of the bursa can lead to shoulder pain, and if that doesn't go away through inactivity or physiotherapy, you can have a cortisol injection. And because it's a potent anti-inflammatory, reduces inflammation, reduces pain, right? Now, the way that it does this is because it's a steroid, yep. it means it's a fat, right? So, steroids yep. are produced by cholesterol and it's a fat. Now, that means that, so this is an important point, steroids function not by binding to receptors on the cell surface, they just move straight through the cell. Why, do they, why would a steroid have the ability to simply move straight through the cell and go into the middle of the cell? Is that a question to me? Question to you, because no one else can answer this yeah. right now. I thought it was just rhetorical. 
Um, Do I know what rhetorical means? Because the membrane is also fatty. Yes. And so it can pass through it without any problem. Yeah, so the steroid hormone, cortisol, will simply, or cortisone, can simply move through the cell membrane and go into the nucleus of the cell. The nucleus contains what, Matt? That's where your DNA that's right. is and, held. And so that's you... where steroids have their effect. Steroids attenuate or mediate gene expression. So it determines what genes are being um, transcribed mm. and then translated into proteins. So that's how steroids have their effect. They can play around with gene expression and then protein expression. Does that make sense? Yep. So, in saying that, glucocorticoids, the way they act as potent anti-inflammatories is they basically reduce the amount of lymphocytes that are being made, uh, eosinophils that are being made. Um, so they're a type of... The eosinophils are like a... White blood cells. Yeah, so uh, not a lymphocyte. So no. not, not a T or B, but there are a, usually they're a cell that um, goes up with allergic reactions and yes. parasites. That's right, and so also with asthma. Um, yes, that's very important. Um, it also reduces cytokine production, so cytokines are a pro-inflammatory um, yep. protein as well, and also su- uh, suppresses histamine release. So this is that's a big one. A very big one. So all so this just shows that a little bit of steroid goes a long way by suppressing numerous aspects of inflammation. In addition, and this is another very important point, when it comes to the use of steroids to mitigate pain, mm-hmm. glucocorticoids reduced reduce prostaglandin synthesis. Okay. Now prostaglandins are made from cell membranes when they die off. They basically recycle cell membranes. And they produce prostaglandins. Prostaglandins do a thousand different things in the body. One of which is they cause pain. Okay. Right. So. And inflammation. And inflammation. Yeah, so absolutely both. Both the dilation. So glucocorticoids reduce pain by stopping prostaglandins from being synthesized from c- cell walls of broken down cells. Mm. That's enough about cortisol. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So should we? No, I think we'll leave it to. When we talk about cushions, then. All right, we need to talk about mineralocorticoids. Yeah, so that that's the... So we spoke about the glucocorticoids, which is the cortisol. Um, that's the second layer in the cortex. So that's the zona. Which one? Fasciculara. Yeah. So we go... I had a mouthful of water while you asked me that. So we go... Let's go to the one before it, which is the zona glomerulosa. And the zona glomerulosa. So that's the mineral corticoids. That's right. So... What's a mineral... Well, is what's mineral referring to in this in this context? Sodium. That's my boy. So this is the aldosterone, right? Yeah, we spoke about aldosterone a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about the kidneys. And we've done it a few times. The we've spoken about it heaps, haven't we? Yeah. So do you remember what aldosterone does? When we ask students in our exams, uh, list one function of aldosterone or the primary function of aldosterone. What should students be writing as an answer? I think that should say that it um, acts on the DCT, the distal convoluted tubule, which yes. is a collecting duct. Of the nephron. That area, the nephron. And really works at increasing the amount of sodium that can be put back into the blood. Or reabsorbed. And therefore, by doing so, you have more um, water that goes in with it. Yep. Wherever sodium goes, water follows. Yeah. That's just a general little... Now, with that, there is going to be 
um, I guess, a side effect, which is you're going to lose um, hydrogen ions and potassium yes. into the urine. So it can be... Um, and this is an important point to remember, especially with what we're going to talk yeah, about shortly. Right. So it's it's going to put sodium and water into the blood, which is going to be great for boosting up your intravascular volume when you're dehydrated or you've got you know you've had a bleed or something you, your blood levels is low yeah blood volume's low but over time if it keeps going it's going to cause you to lose hydrogen ions from your blood because you're going to be peeing them out and also potassium as well so you can uh-huh. have that possibility of becoming deficient in those two so um, cations uh, and that's that's a good point so in in the context of how does all this happen like you said, let's just somebody somebody has a, a bleed, right? And they're losing blood volume. So this is one example, right? A bleed losing blood volume. If you lose blood volume, you lose blood pressure, right? Yeah. And we know that our kidneys, specifically the nephrons, can measure blood pressure. At mm-hmm. the at, and this is happening at the arterial group of cells that are called the juxtaglomerular cells, okay. right? And they pick up a drop in blood pressure. Now, in addition. It's not the only thing that can stimulate this next process to happen. If also your uh, the way that your kidneys filter the blood drops. Mm-hmm. So think about it, if you lose blood, the uh, kidney's ability to filter blood will also drop, right? Because of the pressure, right? Because of the pressure's dropped. Yeah. So anything that results in a drop in blood pressure at the kidneys mm-hmm. is going to result in this process that I'm about to talk about happening. Yep. So this drop in blood pressure can also result in a drop in glomerular filtration. Yep which can result in decreased sodium getting to the distal convoluted tubule, right? Now, when these two things happen, one or the other or both, it stimulates the release of renin. Yep. Now, renin is was spoken about before. This is going to be the start of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Or RAS. Or RAS. Now, renin will, stimu- will basically cleave... Another important molecule called angiotensinogen, and it t- which comes from where? where? Where does angiotensinogen come from? Yeah, uh, I think liver makes it. Liver. If it ends in O-G-E-N, it's you've got to be quite confident it's going to come from the liver. Okay. Renin cleaves angiotensinogen, which is a molecule that's come from the liver, turns it into angiotensin one, gets to the lungs. ACE, angiotensin-converting enzyme from the lungs, turns it into angiotensin-2. And now you've got this highly functioning molecule called angiotensin-2, which travels to the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal gland to release aldosterone. Yep. And it's so, now aldosterone that, like you said, will go to the distal convoluted tubule, reabsorb sodium back into the body. And water. And then water, and then increase blood pressure, which was the original deficit. Point. So what... Would ACTH also cause that to be released? Yes. Okay. That's absolutely right. So, adrenal corticotropic hormone coming from the anterior pituitary gland will also result in the release of aldosterone. Okay. And this can be important when it comes to a disorder which is an increased release of aldosterone. Okay. Hyperaldosteronism. Right. Okay. Uh should we just quickly... Do you want to talk about that? Or do you want to go and talk about the sex steroids? Yeah, I think we should just finish off the cortex. Okay. So, we've done we've done the medulla, and we've done two parts of the cortex. So, we've done the glomerulosa, and we've done the fasciculata. 
we've just got the reticularis to go, which is the most inner part of the cortex. Yeah. And these group of cells also, they're releasing a corticosteroid hormone. Yep. But they are more around the sex hormones. So it's going to be estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, or androgens. Yeah, androgens. And so... The the derivative of those... The derivatives of those hormones. And from my understanding, these are going to be probably a bit more active in the early uh, childhood development before the gonads become mature and Mm -hmm. start to be active. Mm -hmm. So probably, I'd be guessing, that the estrogen... The estrogen release from this group of cells for the female would help to develop the the reproductive tract in the female Mm -hmm. up to the point when the ovaries start to become dominant and have its own kind of feedback loop with the um, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland to then regulate the um, menstrual cycle and so forth. Yeah. Whereas in the male, um, that helps to develop the secondary sex characteristics uh, and then it's not really um, up till puberty then the male starts to produce testosterone from the Sertoli cells. That's all the gonads. Okay, in the testes. And then progesterone, which again is more common to be released in the female. Yep. Pro, and just think about progestation. So you're really just trying to keep gestation or pregnancy. Yep. So pro, progesterone is all about maintaining pregnancy once it's started and particularly developing the uterus wall in the secretory phase of but, the menstrual cycle. Yeah, and, and, but I think it's really important to, to say that the physiological effects of adrenal sex steroids is quite weak in comparison to those of the gonadal sex steroids. Yep. So they play a, a lesser role, um, particularly in males. So in females, like you said, it does, you know, supports a normal, um, it actually supports pubic and axillary hair growth, plays a role in maintaining libido, um, and even plays a role in like sense of well-being as well. So they're the, they're the sex steroids. And, what and they're probably like- the alternative source for the, so for the, jet, the sex, mm-hmm. it's the source to produce the opposite hormone. So for females, this would be the place where they would get their testosterone. Mm. And for the males, this is a place where they would get their estrogen, I'd imagine. Yeah, good point. So, anything else about the adrenal sex steroids? No, I don't think that we'll... I think we'll cover a lot more of that once we do the reproductive system. Yeah, I agree. So, I think as long as the listeners are aware that there is this part of the adrenal gland that does have a role in the sex hormones, I think that's enough. All right. Um, so, should we move into the disorders? Briefly, yeah, let's do it. Finish it off. Where do you want to start? You want to start with insufficiencies? No, always go with the the over secretions, Michael. Okay, so what are we going to start with? I think we'll go for the over secretions of the adrenal gland, which is commonly referred to as Cushing syndrome. Yeah, which um, shouldn't be mistaken with Cushing disease. What's the difference? Well, Cushing syndrome is more a syndrome of just overproduction of. the hormones within the generally the cortex. That's okay. syndrome or disease? That's syndrome. Yeah. Okay. So the disease, my understanding of the disease is is specifically as a secondary disease, which is from a pituitary probably adenoma or abnormality, which is causing too much ACTH to be released. 
yeah. which is then going to cause a high amount of the corticosteroids to be released. Well, let's first just, before we go into that, because people have no context here, so I think it's important to say, you brought, brought him up before, but Harvey Cushing, right? 1912, he described Cushing's syndrome. Yep, so right? I think he had a patient, Mayo, Young woman. Mayo Clinic. Yep, and he stated they had an extraordinary appearance. They developed obesity, okay, amenorrhea, right? What's that? So, lack of uh, menstruation, yeah. Easy bruising, extreme muscle weakness. So, these are some of the... the, the Buffalo hump. And buffalo hump. So, what's that mean when when they say buffalo hump? Um, That's just a, a, a deposition of fat in... The cervical region of the neck. So yeah. So basically, what you find is you get this redistribution of fat in Cushing syndrome, and for some well, reason, I don't think they know necessarily why, but a lot of this fat seems to get redistributed to the neck. I wonder if that's got to do with brown fat, because that's predominantly where your brown fat is. Yeah, I don't know, but I don't think you can turn white fat into brown fat. Maybe someone Brent, correct me with but that. Brown fat is metabolically more active, right? Doesn't it have a, a a benefit on your metabolic state. Yeah, but aren't adults quite poor in brown fat? Well, well in comparison to children yeah. or infants, yes, but in cadaveric dis- dissections, the, probably the one apparent location of brown fat is the neck. Mm. So you'll see it quite distinctly there once you cut kind of into the triceps. Yeah. Sorry, not the triceps, trapezius. You'll see it quite there. But let me just point out here, because point this out. is important to know, um, buffalo humps um, generally don't always go with Cushing syndrome. Yeah. It goes more with Cushing disease. So okay. from a pituitary driven thing. Because if you look at Cushing syndrome, yeah. so I think clinically the most common what do you think the most common presentation of Cushing syndrome? Yeah. Obesity? No, sorry. Cause, etiology. Uh, most common cause? Um, I would say it's uh, overuse of glucocorticoids. Yeah, yeah. So it's autogenic. So it's through um, drugs or so forth that are being used for the patient mm. over long periods of time, mm. and that has now lead to a high amount. That's why when you get given steroids for use, they'll always tell. There's always warnings about its overuse. Yeah, always so let, warnings. So let's give a couple of examples why a person would be taking um, cortisol. Yeah, or in most cases, systemically, it's going to be called prednisone. I'd say the main reason would be um, systemic inflammatory disorders. Yeah. Though it may not um, so necessarily systemic, but inflammatory disorders. Yeah, so think about um, what's one of its things that it does, as a, as a side effect? <laughs> what? English, say all that again. What's one of the things it does? One of the things that it does? Yeah, what, what, does, it, what does it do? What's like you, you, you mentioned it earlier, it does something to the immune system. Suppresses it. Yeah, so think about clinically, when would you want to suppress the immune system? When it's overactive. Yeah, so that's an autoimmune diseases. Okay. So like rheumatoid arthritis. Ah, uh, yes. You give the person um, prednisone and that would cause the decrease in immune response in the joints, mm. but it's going to have these other systemic response. Gotcha. And in that leading to potential cushions. Or a person who has really, really bad asthma. Yeah. And they need to have prednisone systemically. Yeah. Okay. So I think to try and help with the confusion between Cushing's syndrome and Cushing's disease is that predominantly you're going to find that Cushing's syndrome is because of overuse of glucocorticoids. 
That's called exogenous Cushing syndrome. Endogenous mm. Cushing syndrome is actually very rare, and you'll find five oh, to rarer. ten, yeah. five to ten people in one million will have is this en- for disease. This is for Cushing syndrome. Oh. We'll have endogenous. So again, exogenous. The majority of exogenous Cushing syndrome is overuse of glucocorticoids. Yep. So like cortisol, for example, prednisone, whatever it may be. Yeah, prednisone. Endogenous. So from their own patient. Yep, endogenous. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, Cushing syndrome is rare. Between 5 to 10 million people, uh, 5 to 10 people per 1 million will get it. And of these, most of these individuals, like 75% of them, will have Cushing disease. Yeah, so that's pituitary. Yes, that means that the glucocorticoid excess is caused because of hypersecretion of the pituitary gland. Yeah, and that's because now with the pituitary glands as the issue here, which is a secondary problem, not a primary function. Yeah. Not a primary problem. Uh, explain a, why. Explain why it's a, pro, it's a secondary, not a primary. Well, the, the disease itself is too much. Well, let's just use cortisol as the, the too much being released. Yep. Um, if it was, if the disease was intrinsic to the gland itself, yeah. that would be primary because it's pri- the primary problem is in the gland. Gotcha. But now it's coming... The, the, the etiology or the causes come in from a secondary place. Yep. In this case, it's the pituitary gland. Yep. Therefore, it's a secondary disease or a secondary Makes sense. endocrine disease. Makes or sense. Or if you came from the hypothalamus, yep. then it'll be a tertiary because it has to come All from right, the hypothalamus. All right, stop it now, Matthew. Pituitary. <laughs> but that makes sense. But like you said, there's three, from my understanding, there's three common causes of endogenous Hypersecretion. Okay. The most common, yeah. again, this is just my, I'm not a clinician, but from my research, um, the most common out of the three endogenous yeah. is from the pituitary gland. Yeah. Okay. So the pituitary, All of them. So the, no, so the pituitary gland is secreting too much. said, oh, the most common of the three. Of the three. Sorry, go on. The, the pituitary gland is secreting too much ACTH. Mm-hmm. Okay. Adrenocorticotropic hormone. And this is, but this is in a very, it's almost a benign, insidious, very slow. Yeah. Okay. So this is where they're much more likely to get the buffalo hump because it happens over years. Yeah. Possibly even decades. So it's really slow. Yeah. Okay. It's not malignant, let's say. Okay. Whereas probably the next common out of the three is actually surprisingly from a tumor or tumors in the lung. In the lung? Yeah. So patients Explain have that. lung cancer. Yeah, a type of I think a type of small cell carcinoma yeah. in the lung. I think they're called an oat cell carcinoma. Okay, and these cells obviously are causing problems to the lung itself, but for some reason, I'm not sure why, they secrete ACTH. You find that with a lot of secondary lung cancers, right? Yeah. That they seem to release hormones that should be deriving from other parts of the body. Mm. Because of, but metastatic changes, right? Yeah, so it, these cells have become cancerous, so they're not behaving like they should be in the lung. Yeah. And now they're secreting something else that makes no sense in the, in the location that they're in. So, is it, you may not know the answer, but is it because of metaplasia, the, ch- the cells are changing type, or is it because of metastasis, where the cells are changing their state of being and moving from one place to another place? Is it, I don't think is it because there was be an wrong. adrenal carcinoma that has, moved, that has metastasized no, 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 no. to the lungs? That's my point. Oh, I can see what you mean. No, no, I think I'm pretty sure it's a primary. 
Oh, it's a primary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's a primary lung cancer. And but, so that's the second behaving. most common. Yeah, well, my understanding is, but the, because this is an aggressive disease, you're going to have patients that is, they're secreting high amounts of the ACTH. And so it's going to come on very rapidly. Mm-hmm. But because they're in a cancer state, yeah. they're not going to get the weight gain. Ah, oh, good point. Because they're going to be good point. emaciated and so forth. So they won't get a buffalo hump. Kikectic? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They'll get other things that will go with the high amounts of uh, cortisol release. Yeah. But they won't get the you know the typical weight gain and buffalo hump and mm. so forth. And All the other right. one is then the primary disorder. So it's actually at the adrenal, ad- adrenal gland itself. Fair enough, makes sense. But they that's the least that's the least common of the three. But they're all going to present with a the cushion or the cushoid um, presentation, I think. Yeah. And so then, what the doctor would do would have to figure out where it's coming from. So I think what they do then is they just give them a huge amount of cortisol. They just give them a, a nightly injection of cortisol. But that makes no sense because it's it's because of hyper release of cortisol. Yeah. Right. But by giving a huge amount of cortisol, like above even what they would be normally at, yeah. then they would come back and take blood again and look at the ACTH levels. Because ah, so they should be suppressed because of negative be feedback. Right. I, but if there's a tumor, then what, it will constantly be released. My understanding is... That makes sense. What the cortisol will do to the pituitary will actually suppress it. Yes, but it sh- won't have any effect at the adrenal gland itself. Because of Less, the tumor. but it definitely wouldn't have an effect with the lung cancer. Yes. Fair. Yeah, okay, yeah. And so, the, the lung cancer was just gotcha. going strong. And so, then they would, I think they do a 24-hour cortisol assay. Yeah. To just take cortisol every hour or something, a 24-hour period, which is the most accurate. That's a, the that's the primary test, the yep. gold standard test. Yeah. And that will tell you where it is. And then, if there isn't any ACTH um, feedback, then they would probably assume it's lung and then do a, a lung, or like chest CT or something. Yeah, that makes sense. So All that's right. Cushing's. That's Cushing's. What about hyperaldosteronism, if we're going to talk about hyper... So that's that's hypersecretion of cortisol, so the glucocorticoids. What about but, hypers- saying that, but saying that, it can also... Yeah, here we go. It can also release the aldosterone as well. So you, Damn the, right it can. The and adrenaline. Yeah. Now, focusing on aldosterone... Hyperaldosteronism. Hyperaldosteronism. Hyper... Hyperaldosteronism. Yeah. So I think you can get. Oh, this, now I'm racking my brain. I think the the most common is secondary, which is from a Renin drive in action. So mm-hmm. I think that's the most common cause of hyperaldosteronism. Yeah, is from the Renin side of things. Yep. Um, and wh- so that's what's going to be one of the main symptoms? Think about if you have. So the purpose of aldosterone being released was to increase blood pressure, mm. right? Because increased sodium back in the body, increased water, increased blood volume, increased blood pressure. So if you have hyperaldosteronism, what do you think one of the main symptoms is going to be? Hypertension. Hypertension, that's right. So, And you probably the, get edema. These patients are hypertensive. Have and certain degrees of edema. That's right. And you'll find that they're going to be predominantly resistant hypertensive patients, meaning oh, yeah. normal hypertensive Meds won't work. Won't work. You need a lot to address of the, a, lot of the, a lot of the meds do work on the RAS system. Don't that's they? yeah. That's that's true. Um, but then my understanding is the the real kind of red flags in these guys are the um, potassium and hydrogen deficiencies. So they would most likely present 
or potentially present with metabolic alkalosis mm-hmm. and hypokalemia. Yes. Which are quite probably more threatening, life-threatening than, than the blood That's pressure. That's right. So the reason why high patients may be hypokalemic is because of the swap between sodium going back in the body. It's often swapped with potassium going back into the tubules to be peed out. Yep. But for some reason, a lot of the time in patients with hyperaldosteronism, they aren't actually hypokalemic. They're normokalemic. I'm not sure why, but I think it's important to bring up. Probably would depend on uh, if it's primary and secondary as well. True. Um, and I think the primary, so primary hyperaldosteronism yep. is the most common cause of... <laughs> so the Go on. primary yeah. is the most common cause of a secondary um, hypertension. What? Oh, secondary hypertension. So explain that then. Well... When you have hypertension, so any person with hypertension, yeah, um, you have to ascertain what the cause is. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm guessing here, but probably 90% of people with hypertension have what we call a primary hypertension or essential hypertension. Yeah. Which means really, the doctor doesn't really know what's causing it. That's right. It's probably if you're going to put your finger on it, some kind of poor regulation with the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. But you can't be sure that that's the reason. Yes. Okay. Now, a secondary cause, it's meaning that the hypertension is caused by a known cause yep. somewhere else. Certain things like um, you've got a constriction or a sclerosis in your renal artery. Yep. So, the blood flow into the kidneys is less, but the rest of the body is fine. But the kidney thinks it's got a low blood pressure, so it tells your body to bump up the blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So, you get hypertension. Right. Now, the most common cause is, my understanding, yeah. of, of primary hypertension, sorry, of secondary hypertension, is primary hyperaldosteronism. Jesus. Well, I'm confused. Does, that, does everyone know what the hell's going on here? So, just basically too much aldosterone being released by the adrenal gland, okay, is the most common cause of a secondary hypertensive state. Okay. So... When it comes to aldosteronism, mm. right? So I think what we need to the majority of the time it's going to be caused by some sort of aldosterone producing cancer. So aldosterone producing adenoma, for example. Then you're going to have the next most common cause is idiopathic hyperaldosteronism. So we have no idea what's causing it. Then we can have one that can actually be suppressed through glucocorticoid, which is telling you something interesting that maybe ACTH is causing this stimulation of aldosterone to be released. So, does, it, does that make sense? I think so. Okay. Um, I think we've spoken too much and we should move on. Do you think? With aldosteronism? Yeah. Okay. I think well, let's go to the high pose states okay. and, and finish it. As long as, as long as people are aware that with... Aldosterone, the purpose is to reabsorb sodium back into the body, water will follow. If you have an increased release of aldosterone, so increased release of this mineralocorticoid from the adrenal cortex, again, it's just going to increase this. So patients will exhibit hypertension. They'll have excessive renal potassium being peed out. They will potentially be hypokalemic because of this, and they may have metabolic alkalosis, again, Mm -hmm. because they're peeing out 
Hydrogen. All these hydrogen ions. Yeah. Now, this is going to lead to many neuromuscular issues yeah. or potentially lead to neuromuscular issues. Okay? So, it needs to be addressed. Need to find out whether it's something with the the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system that can be altered or whether it's a, a adrenal carcinoma or adenoma or some sort of cancer at that area or whether it's caused by some issue higher up, so the hypothalamus or pituitary. I think that's all right to leave there. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Are we going to do the insufficiencies and then finish off? Yeah, I think so. All right. So, first insufficiency we should talk about is just general adrenal insufficiency. Um, so, which, this is at the adrenal gland itself? Yep. So, adrenal insufficiency, which is called Addison's. If it's primary adrenal insufficiency, so the adrenal gland itself just isn't producing enough adrenaline, right? So, that's primary. Primary. It's and this is Addison's? Addison's disease. And most commonly by an autoimmune disease? Yeah, an autoimmune disease or some sort of infection like uh, tuberculosis, for example. Oh, right. Can... Which, which is probably the most common cause worldwide. Yes. But the least common probably in the Western world because it's not an endemic disease anymore. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's quite rare. Addison's disease, quite rare. Is that what JFK had? I don't know, did he? I always get it mixed up. He had Cushing's or Addison's. Well, it didn't look like he had Cushing's because you would have assumed he would have had more of the visible manifestations. So, basically, um, Addison's disease, again, primary adrenal insufficiency, so not there's not enough production of, of these hormones. Yeah, JFK did. Oh, he did? Okay, interesting. So... It can be because of, you know, tuberculous destruction. So, tuberculosis is destroying the adrenal glands. And it's manifested through weakness, fatigue, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, and interestingly, hyperpigmentation. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, Actually, I think in both cases, they get a change in pigmentation. I think even in Cushing's, they do as well. Really? So, hyperpigmentation in Addison's disease. Yeah, definitely in Addison's. So, what's going on here then? Well, this this highlights a really interesting point that I spoke to you yesterday about, Mike. Yeah. That with the evolution of endocrine glands and so forth, it's not actually the hormone that really changes over time. It's the tissue's response to the hormone. So, a classic example is prolactin, right? Prolactin in all vertebrates, at least, yeah. have a fairly strong effect on the skin. Okay. Okay. So you'd think for humans, I know that prolactin should tell you in the name what it does. Mm. Prolactation. So it has an effect of um, milk production. Yeah. Producing milk, not let down. Not let down. Okay. That's oxytocin. Very good. Now, <laughs> remember going back to the our lactation podcast. Yes. Where did breast tissue originate from? can't remember. Skin. So, it it came as like a modified sweat sebaceous gland. Yes. Okay. So, it was really the tissue that changed, not the hormone. So, the hormone's relatively similar. It's just the tissue's response to that hormone has changed. And so, if you think, again, use prolactin as an example. Mm -hmm. In, say, birds, it helps them put on weight and become broody and then help to have young. Mm -hmm. Maybe also help them put, put fat on and then migrate to the other end of the planet. You're talking about prolactin still, Prolactin, right? yeah. Yeah. But for us, uh, it's more predominantly to do with breast, right? Yeah. But, and then so in other animals, it might help with metamorphosis and so forth. But when you talk about um, the corticoids, okay, one of their releases um, has an effect with melanocyte-stimulating hormone. And so they're very similar, 
Yeah. And I think so the ACTH in Addison's because it's a pri- Addison's is a primary yeah. hypersecretion, right? Hypo. Hypo. Yeah. So the problem is in the adrenal gland, right? Yeah. So what would you expect the um, pituitary to be doing? Over secreting yeah. ACTH. Right. So you get higher levels of ACTH. Yeah. And I think the ACTH is almost the same as the melanocyte stimulating hormone. Well, there are melanocyte stimulating that, hormones in the right. anterior yeah, pituitary. Which may be secreting that as well. So, which will cause the person's melanocytes or ah. coloring cells in their skin yeah. to go wild. That's and, crazy, isn't it? And so they'll go probably tanned or they might go bronze looking. Wow. So I think JFK did have a bit of a... He did have a tan, but he was probably often in the sun as well. So, okay, so so in saying that, like I said, with Addison's disease, which is a hypo secretion of these hormones at the gland itself, at the adrenal gland, this hormonal insufficiency caused by intrinsic adrenal disease, right? So it's it, because it's primary, arises from three main mechanisms. Okay. Right? So one is it's congenital. So, so there's this... What? When it happens in the embryo. Yeah. So there's like a dysgenesis or a hypoplasia of some sort. Mm-hmm. So it's not produced properly or it's not produced at all. Secondly, it can be just due to defective steroid genesis. So there's just That's, an issue with producing steroid hormones. Which is usually enzymatic. So the enzymes that create them aren't working well. Correct. And the last one is adrenal destruction. And that's where you were talking about the autoimmune diseases. Yeah. So of these adrenal destruction from autoimmune diseases, you know, is is usually most common f- secondary to infection. Yeah, and so that's similar to what we saw, saw in the thyroid. The actual immune um, antibodies and so forth are targeting these cells, yes. which is causing the destruction and therefore um, reduction in release of the corticosteroids. Yeah. So that's primary adrenal insufficiency known as Addison's disease. Secondary adrenal insufficiency, like you alluded to, um, is relatively common. Is it? Yeah. I don't know what the percentage is, but I know it's relative. uh, What does that mean, relatively Mm. common? I'll I'll remove that statement. Um, (laughs) And it results from... So are these diseases more common than the hypersecretory diseases? I don't know, man. Okay. I don't know. I shouldn't have made the statement. Um, <laughs> the secondary adrenal insufficiency is due to decrease in ACTH, adrenal corticotropic hormone, being released from the anterior pituitary. Mm-hmm. Hence, it being secondary. Okay. Um, now, this that- often occurs in the setting of uh, pharmacological steroid withdrawal. So, you have been on steroids uh, okay. and now you've been taken off the steroids. And so, you've got a re- this rebound sort of effect that's happening. And so is that adrenal crisis? Because there's an adrenal crisis which comes about by... Could be. Could be um, adrenal crisis. They've been on steroids for such a long period of time and they come off it and they... Yeah, maybe. Um, well, that's yeah. Well, that's basically it because when you've got patients who are see, receiving like these supra-physiological doses of glucocorticoids, um, you know, for a, a relatively long period of time, um, you can suppress that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access yeah. you just suppress it in full yeah. so that when you jump off it you're not mm-hmm. producing any mm-hmm. you still won't produce any yeah. and you're not taking exogenous yeah. to make up for it yeah. so you get zero steroid hormone release but I think with particularly with the um, the secondary cause um, because the um, adrenal gland hasn't been stimulated for such a long period by mm. the ACTH I think 
the initial treatment is because the adrenal gland is so atrophied, mm. um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get it back into its secretory state. Oh, I gotcha. So it's more than just giving back the hormone. You have to actually get the gland back up to its functional state yeah. and then maintain it. But then the doctor, because ultimately the physician has to be doing this, the endocrinologist has to be doing this all the time, yeah. he or she has to be able to regulate the different states of the patient. Yeah, that's so right. if they're going into surgery, they've got to make sure that they increase the dose because the body's under a lot of stress. See, that's endocrinology is a difficult, mm. difficult um, field of of uh, medical research to partake in. Yeah. And to become an endocrinologist, my God, you got to be wicked smart to do that. Too too smart for us. Well and truly, put well, at least us two together. Put us two together and you'll get somebody who may be able to potentially at some point, if they went through decades of training, be an endocrinologist. <laughs> potentially. And, All right. and an odd looking person. Yeah, because you got red hair and I'm stunningly attractive. So, together. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry for all the redhead listeners out there. Now we're going to get another, a whole lot of another one stars. <laughs> Please don't give us no more one stars. Come on. If you dislike us that much, just just don't listen. <laughs> I think if you like us, five stars. Come on. More more stars we get, the uh, the more popular we become. And that's good because we, we want to disseminate this information. We just like to teach. That's it. We're doing this for free. We just want to teach you guys. Well, we don't want to necessarily teach you guys. We just want to help supplement your learning. Or if you're interested, we love talking about this stuff. Mm. Um, so if you want us to keep doing it, give us five stars, the more one stars we get, the, the sadder Matt becomes and the more I need to console him and the less time he has to research these topics. The more likely I'm going to attack Michael with butter knives exactly. in my sleep. And then I'm going to have to have this HPA axis stimulation and who knows what happens next. Oh, the weather outside is wrong. All right. You ready, Matty? We don't have snow in, in Christmas time in Australia. Unfortunately not. But I've never actually been in the snow. It Did snowed once when I lived in Victoria, but it was just during what during the Christmas time. No, 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 no. I've never just I've never been to the snow in my life. Haven't you? No. I lived in Fiji and I lived in <laughs> Queensland, and it's it's just you don't get much snow in Fiji. I hope not. Maybe with climate change, we could. I've been to probably not. I've been to the states, and I've been to Europe, and I've been to Japan. When it's cold. Well, you're Serbian, so you yeah. should be. And uh, what? That's a, should... co- that's a cold country, at least it in the winter. A, it is a cold country. I've never been to Serbia, though. Haven't you? No. There you go. So maybe that can be the next visit. And maybe Belgrade will show me some snow. Well, well if you want to send Michael to Serbia. <laughs> <laughs> More one stars. I'd, ra- <laughs> I'd rather send him to Siberia. <laughs> All right. Have a wonderful Christmas, everyone. And we'll see you soon. In a few weeks. Bye. Suggestions. Suggestions. Go, go, go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.